Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Good afternoon. Welcome to Indigo Radio on the air every Sunday at noon. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio. And our show is recorded and posted to SoundCloud and as a podcast um, on the iTunes store. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Last week, we replayed a show about panhandling in Brattleboro and how some members of the community, mainly business owners and their allies, want to hide poverty by getting rid of panhandlers. We at Indigo Radio attended the community meeting on Wednesday to oppose the criminalization of poverty. There, we discussed with um, close to 100 other people what we can do to help and support each other. And many people expressed wanting to have more conversations and talking about how do we make Brattleboro safe for everyone. And that includes getting everyone um, their needs, mm. their needs met. Housing and food and everything that anyone might need to, to survive in this world. Okay, thanks, Becca, for that recap. Today, we're going to be talking about disappearance. And we had delayed this show from last week because of the importance of the conversation that took place um, this week at the library. But so across the world, thousands of people are fighting for political freedom. And every year, thousands of people are, are disappeared. In this particular show, we're going to be talking about the disappeared in Syria. And so we'll have with us Danny Kabani, uh, a Syrian from Moadim it's Muadamiyat al-Sham, which is basically in the countryside of Damascus. Um, he now works with the Syrian Network for Human Rights. And Mahmoud Nawar, who is a Palestinian Syrian writer and journalist, he himself was a prisoner in Syria uh, during this prolonged conflict. He'll also be joining us. Um, and so we just wanted to uh, introduce the idea of disappearance um, as a form of political oppression and, and repression. Mm -hmm. And so on August 30th, it was International Day of the Disappeared, which is a UN holiday as of 2010, but really this day was brought by the strength in organizing of families from around the world, and it's not mm -hmm. necessarily due to um, the UN. Right. It's really, they were, they were put, pressure put on the UN in order to have a day but really every day we should be remembering. And the term enforced disappearances refers to victims forcibly abducted as a strategy to intimidate and spread fear throughout a population. Although most of the victims are actually killed, others were tortured or smuggled into another country, making it very difficult to determine their whereabouts. Some reported as disappear might never be found and their bodies never recovered. And this is something that um, we've seen throughout the world, really. Mm. Um, and I know that in the 70s and 80s, in Latin America in particular, there are hundreds of thousands of people who were disappeared as a means of limiting opposition to the military dictatorships. And these dictatorships were put into power, at least backed by the U.S. government at the time. Mm. And so one um, pretty well-known at this point um, organization, of a human rights organization, the Grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, 
began as a group of women relatives. This is in Argentina, by the way, looking for their missing loved ones. There were close to 30,000 people forcibly disappeared uh, during the dictatorship in Argentina. And these grandmothers at the Plaza de Mayo were able to um, put enough pressure, and they really had to do their own investigations. The government was not supportive at all, even after the dictatorship had ended. And they were looking for their children and their grandchildren, some of who were taken and given to military or political elite who could not have children of their own. And the campaign has... um, had many successes, including 115 grandchildren being reunited with their families. Um, I just love this quote by Eduardo Galeano. It's part of one of his poems. In Argentina, the locus of Plaza de Mayo will be an example of mental health because they refuse to forget in the times of mandatory amnesia. And locus is the crazies, right? So the craziness of the, the mothers and grandmothers of Plaza del Mayo will be the example of mental health. And so I think that rings true for people across um, the Arab world as well. There are many families who come out every year um, to protest and demand to know where their loved ones have gone in Lebanon also. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that's just happening um, now in Syria. And it's not something that's only happened in Latin America. It's happening worldwide. Mm and. Um, recently, uh, there were some journalists in India that were abducted, um, and people don't call it abducted, right, because it's by state forces, mm-hmm. but no one knows where they've gone. Mm-hmm. And so that is exactly what disappearance is, is um, it's almost um, playing with the minds of the rest of the population, wondering what happened, what happened, where did these people go? And of course, that's because of their work in opposing regimes or um, governments that really suppress the rights of people. And you know, it's interesting because um, we don't often, it's often the information is not always available at the time when people are being disappeared. Mm. But we now know that in the 70s and 80s, mostly the 80s, Operation Condor existed which was made up of military dictators. Um, It was a plan of systematic extermination to hunt down left-wing dissidents. And these were a collaboration between the dictatorships in Bolivia, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, Chile, and Paraguay. And so people might ask, well, what does this have to do with us here in the United States? Mm -hmm. And the links have been made between Operation Condor and the CIA, um, including one piece of evidence that Manuel... Conteras, the head of the operation, was also listed on the CIA payroll at the same time period. And also Henry Kissinger came out and uh, um, it was clear his support, but not only his support for Operation Condor, much of Operation Condor existed through the U.S. telecommunications in the Panama Canal zone. Mm. Um, So while people are still finding it difficult to find their families, Part of that is because the information has been purposefully kept secret. It's state secrets, files, documents that is taking a lot of um, effort to get those released. But also when these um, dictatorships left power, some of them forced out of power, 
no one gives up power willingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there were amnesty laws granted to the military. That means that they cannot be held responsible for the crimes that they committed while in power. And so a lot of this happened in the 70s and 80s, right, Becca? Mm-hmm. And so that information has come to light since that time. But Syria, which is what we're going to be discussing today, is still going on. And so it will be interesting to see what what evidence is uncovered and what information we get as, um, as Syria is wrapping up. Um, and I think that Syria being wrapped up at this particular moment in time is a reason that we're doing this show because the fate of many who have been um, disappeared inside of Syria, are they're starting to come to light and, and this is going to be a part of the political negotiations or it's going to be ignored in political negotiations um, with the, between the Russians and the U.S. and the regime um, in Syria. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to go to a song. Before we do, Nick, I just sure, wanted sure. to read a quick quote from um, Gotham... Navlaka, a journalist recently disappeared in India and who was fighting on the behalf of the poor in India. And here's the quote that he wrote. As long as you are alive, believe that life will be victorious. If there is a heaven somewhere created, created on earth, the days of grief are numbered. The days of injustice are numbered. These days shall also pass like a thousand days before them have. You are alive. Thanks, Becca. So we're going to go to a song break. This song is actually by U2, and it's called Mothers of the Disappeared. Welcome back to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. So today we're talking about Syria, and we're doing this show to keep Syria in our minds. It's been more than seven years now that the conflict erupted in in March of 2011. More than 100,000 people have been disappeared, and more than 350,000 people have been killed, and among them 20,000 children. So we wanted to to um, just kind of have a sidebar about the fact that we are calling it a conflict and not a civil war. And that's because, as some might know, um, the world is in Syria right now. Um, many have called it World War III in a, in a specific location. So the US, Russia, Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Iran, 
Um, all of these countries have either sent ground troops. Um, we have all the NATO countries also uh, with their air forces. There's French planes um, and Syrian airspace. Uh, they've sent supplies, training, uh, intelligence, either to the regime or to the opposition, or and the opposition is, is full of a plethora of different fighting groups um, with different political aims. And so the US, Russia, and Israel have all participated in airstrikes inside Syrian borders as well um, for years now, continuing until 2018. And so we wanted to say that this show is in solidarity with the Syrian people. And we're against the Syrian regime's imprisonment, torture, and disappearance of its own people just as much as we're against the US and NATO's bombing of civilians. Um, inside Syria. The U.S.'s bombing campaign in, in Raqqa killed at least 1,000 civilians. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also been bombing campaigns in Mosul in Iraq as well. So right now we're going to go to an interview um, with Danny Kabani. We're lucky to have Danny with us. We pre-recorded him last week. And he spoke with us about the situation inside Syria his own family's experience with enforced disappearance um, and the geopolitical situation, which has led to the, the ruin of Syrian lives. Okay, so we are here with Danny Kapani um, from Syrian Network for Human Rights. Uh, Danny is from around Damascus and he is so lovely to have joined us today to talk to us about um, what's happening in Syria with prisoners. Um, as I said, he works for Syrian Network for Human Rights, which was founded in June of 2011. It's a non-governmental, non-profit organization that works um, to collect information and document what's happening in Syria, and they act also as a primary source for the UN on death tolls in, in Syria. So welcome, Danny. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Welcome, and thank you for uh, hosting me. It's a pleasure. Yes, of course. So we were hoping that to begin that you could describe to our listeners um, in general over the last, now it's been seven years, um, the regime's arrest campaigns and maybe how they've changed um, depending on the shifting context. Uh, yes, uh, first of all, let's start with uh, the concept of enforced disappearance, which is considered one of the strategic weapons of war against the Syrian society and all its segments from March 2011 until today. And as uh, for our documentation, there is a continuous increase in arbitrary arrests, which often turn into enforced disappearances shortly after arrest. Mm. For nearly eight years, people would simply be arrested from their places of work uh, or, or residence or when they pass through checkpoints in a manner of uh, similar to kidnapping. And the authorities uh, often do not show any warrant during detention or even identify themselves, which uh, prohibits the parents from appointing a lawyer, for example. And uh, uh, the authorities also prevent the families of those detainees from asking about them or even visit them and they get threatened by the authorities uh, and prosecuted if they repeat the question about their 
lover who who's uh, been detained. Mm. And so then families are afraid to actually speak or find information about their loved ones that have been disappeared? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, because uh, uh, the majority of Syrians have seen the ugly face of the Syrian regime and uh, uh, they uh, can't uh, ask about them. They are mm. uh, afraid uh, of asking about them. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what the purpose of those campaigns are? You describe them as essentially kidnapping. So what, what is the purpose of all of these arbitrary arrests and enforced disappearance, do you think? Uh, it's uh, one way, for example, to, to shatter uh, community, break the coherence of the, community, of the Syrian community. Another thing is to implement the fear inside uh, the Syrian fear uh, again the Syrian regime after breaking the sphere uh, after the uh, uprising in 2011 uh, they want the Syrian people to live in this fear all of their lives not to raise up their heads and to, to call for uh, uh, freedom call for democracy call for changing this uh, sadistic uh, regime mm -hmm. and this tyranny uh, people live in Syria. Mm -hmm. And so what are the conditions when people are arrested arbitrarily um, and put into prison? What, what are the conditions inside of those prisons and jails in Syria? Yeah, the, uh, there is no uh, health care inside the detention centers. They are uh, uh, neuro centers and uh, overcrowded uh, detention centers as well uh, as this brutal uh, torture the uh, detainees are subjected to on a daily basis and the denial of access to health care and food. Uh, I can mention that these conditions were also uh, prevalent, prevalent before 2011. But after that, the suffering of detainees increased due to the large number of detainees and the policy mm. of retaliation against them. Okay, so you're saying because of the political context in which people were arrested and also because of the amount of people that were, over, uh, that were arrested, the prison conditions became worse. Yeah, yeah, of course, because at the very beginning of the revolution, Syrian revolution, uh, the regime and uh, uh, its main uh, four uh, organs, the military intelligence, the air force intelligence, the political intelligence, and general uh, intelligence, uh, started to detain uh, their uh, opponents of the regime, you know, mm. people who, uh, who were part of uh, peaceful protest, for example, people who used to, <coughs> sorry, people who used to uh, take care of injured people who get shot during this uh, peaceful protest, uh, they start to detain all people who uh, shared those in this uprising, and not only that, but their relatives, their mm. families, they uh, detain those people just to put pressure on uh, activists, for example, to stop this uh, or what they are doing. Mm. Okay, I mean, that's a lot. Also, 
about enforced disappearance. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain what forcibly disappeared means or enforced disappearance means within the Syrian context. And also if you could tell us about the, the thousands of people and possibly hundreds of thousands of people that have been disappeared in Syria um, since 2011. Uh, enforced disappearance means like uh, arrest, detention, abduction, or any other form of deprivation of freedom committed by state agents, persons, or groups of individuals acting with the permission or support of or with the consent of the state. Followed, followed. And uh, the families of these disappeared people haven't received any information about them and haven't been able to take any legal action and of course the Syrian regime has always denied responsibility for their uh, disappearance. Uh, we uh, could uh, document from the very beginning of the uh, Syrian uprising, like uh, eight, uh, 82,000 of uh, disappeared uh, people, mm -hmm. and we document like uh, 13,000 uh, 13, at 100 killed under torture, those uh, 13,100, uh, 13, uh, their families knew uh, that their uh, uh, relatives or uh, mm -hmm. family individuals were killed. They know for sure mm -hmm. that they were killed in those, uh, during those eight years of revolution. But uh, lately, uh, as uh, our last report, uh, we could document like uh, 950 cases uh, of detainees uh, killed under torture who, uh, who, whom families were notified by the uh, civil registry uh, department. Anything else that you think that as you know, people in the U.S. that we should know about um, the regime, that we should know about our own government's involvement with the regime, um, or our own government's involvement with the death of civilians um, in Syria? And you can think about that question for a second. <laughs> I know I sprung it on you. <laughs> for us, since uh, uh, we count in the free people of the world, of course, to move and to keep on moving because we are uh, the victims in a, in a way or another, and we are not tired. We haven't stopped. Uh, resisting and we have been stopped calling for freedom and democracy so we uh, tell uh, we call uh, them not to stop and not to feel like tired and to stay with us uh, and know uh, every single truth about what's happening uh, in Syria uh, for for those for example uh, 82,000 detainees disappeared people and the regimes uh, detention centers, uh, all, all of their families are, are like broken from the inside. They want to know any single thing about them. They want to see them uh, in a good health because they were they were in a good health and they were like kidnapped. And uh, yes, they may be killed, but if they are killed, we want to see their body. So we want you to stay with us and to stick to our good case mm -hmm. because we're not terrorists. As Syrian, we call for freedom and democracy, as I said. And um, uh, 
the good will will prevail after all. We're sure of that. Yes, we have to keep hope. I totally agree. Could you tell us about your own experience with the regime and your own family's experience with the regime? Um, I know you said that your brother, you don't have news of your brother and haven't had news of your brother in five years. Yeah, uh, for us, for me uh, and my family, we've uh, like the, 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 the most worst or the worst experience anyone could go through uh, during this last seven years. Uh, for my brother, he was uh, an employee of the government and he was an English teacher. Uh, he graduated from Damascus University of English Literature Department, and he is now like uh, 45 years old. So 47. Uh, sorry, sorry, 36 years old. Yes. Uh, uh, he was going to his uh, job in uh, 2018 uh, in September uh, when he reached in front of the building where his job is, uh, two armed uh, men, like like the security forces uniform, mm. armed men uh, took him from his jacket from behind and put him in, in a car and uh, took him. Uh, his friend was just near him. He called us and told us uh, uh, Muhammad uh, was taken by security forces. We were shocked. We didn't believe that uh, at once. Uh, we told him, tell us more. He said, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you and uh, tell you more. Uh, he came uh, after that and told us the, what, what happened. And uh, we said, do you know where they told him anything about, other than that? He said, no. Only the two armed men told him and uh, since he uh, also works there uh, or worked there, he know he knew that those are security forces who guard the, the area there. Mm. And since that time, 2011, uh, we uh, haven't heard any single news about him. Uh, we tried to ask about him, ask about him. Uh, we couldn't know any anything. We reached nothing. We uh, we waited for for a long time for any detainee uh, who was released to ask him uh, if he sees uh, or if he saw my brother or so. Mm. Uh, all of them said no, we, we, we didn't see him. So, uh, and until now we know nothing about him. Uh, my mother is so much ill and she like cries every single night because he, he is uh, uh, the one who raised us up since my father died when we are young, uh, no small like it's so he's uh, he's number one in family and mm -hmm. we so love him as a family individual and we, we miss him a lot. Oh well, I'm. I hope that you get news of Muhammad, and I know that there are so many other people who are looking for the same news, and whose mothers also are crying. Sure, it's one example of like the majority of people right. because every single detainee, it's not only one who uh, uh, loves him, it's many families uh, mm. that love him and miss him. Yeah, of course. 
All right, welcome back to Indigo Radio. We are going to go to a song break. That was Danny Cabani with us from Syrian Network for, hum- for Human Rights. And this next song is called Ya Haif, What a Shame. And it's by Samir Shakar. <laughs> That was Yeah Haif, or What a Shame. And so now we're going to go to an interview that we recorded last week with Mahmoud Nawar, who's here in the U.S. ...is a Palestinian, uh, Palestinian-Syrian journalist and writer, and he's going to be talking with us today about his experience um, in Syria and afterwards. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that we, um, as people in the U.S., stand against what our government's doing, and we stand in solidarity with the Syrian people. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we are doing this show, to hear about your experience and to hear, for more people in the U.S. to understand. So thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. Thank you for having me, so we wanted you to talk about how the war has affected your family and yourself personally and where everyone is now after um, having to leave Syria. Okay. Actually, it, is, it sounds like 
simple question, but it is a very complicated one in the same mm. time. The war affected me in all levels and affected my family as well. Personally, I would say you are not the same person after getting displaced, after seeing rain of bombs over your neighborhood, after seeing, seeing rivers of blood and pieces of flesh in the streets, you couldn't be the same person after you see all of that. After you had an experience sent you very near to death, and I think we will speak about this later. After all of that, nobody could be the same person. But it's a very brutal experience to live the war, and especially war like the one in Syria. The civil war, it's, an old, uh, it's, it's a common knowledge that the civil war is the worst kind of wars. Now, my family, my, my, my small family, part three pieces, part in, in the U.S., part in Greece, and part in Germany. And all of these parts couldn't be reunited. That, that is one of the results of having civil war. It's really emotional question because it brought all of these memories and and if I want to describe the effects of the civil war, not a civil war, any war in general, I I, I will have an English answer and I think your 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 program is limited. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah, Nicole. And uh, by the way, even I have uh, just, just as a quick note, I have a bit of problem with calling what's happening in Syria a civil war because it's all started as some people demanding some freedom, some people demanding some democracy. So it's it's a very emotional experience, and it's very difficult to 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 speak about it in in a limited time. I'm wondering, um, you you said it was a civil war, and that you have a problem calling it a civil war, and so the ways in which international um, law defines a civil war is that it's confined to a particular nation nation's borders. And so I'm wondering, um, in that definition, I agree that it is a civil war because it's taking place in a particular space. But I wonder mm -hmm. I wonder how 
the rest of the world has participated in Syria, and if maybe you had something to say about that. I don't mind that, and I have no problem with that, and I do not want to speak politics. Uh, I just want to speak about the humanitarian experience. Mm. The problem started, and yeah, 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 now we could call it a civil war, but I, I was just trying to say how all of it started. Mm, of course. Nicole, all people around all the world deserve a form of democracy. I'm not saying democracy even a form of democracy, a form of liberty. Who hope for the future in Syria? Just want, <laughs> like, like the classic uh, wish in every New Year's Eve, I just want peace in the world. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. What I want for Syria is people living in dignity, and in peace, and with a form of democracy. Is it too much for Syrian people? For all the Middle East? I don't think so. I think you talked about your family being in Greece and in Germany, and you're here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how does that change the way that you... Um, the way that you see your, like, the future of your people. I know that you, and we introduced you as a Palestinian person from Syria. You grew up in Syria. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about the displacement. Um, the I'm the, from the Jerusalem. Very displacement. Are, uh, I'm from Jerusalem, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So my case is kind of, I think, not my case as me, personally. The case of half million Palestinian Syrian is kind of unique because because they suffered in many levels from two sides. Like like because they, they, they got they got deported uh, not deported, uh, excuse me, they got transferred from their main homeland in Palestine in 1948, and then, and what I want is just easily, like, any person have my unique status. They want first to live in dignity and second to get back their rights as Palestinians and as Syrians. And, and here my position is kind of complicated because I'm speaking about two cases in the same time. Mm -hmm. As a Syrian, of course, I want dignity and democracy for this country. And as Palestinian, I want my life back. And easily, the, the, the easiest 
uh, 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 way to, to put it, the right of return, the right of return uh, to my homeland where my grandfather got kicked out of his farm and his house in 1948. So, I just feel the world is very, very, we live in very unjust world. And that is not my feeling. This is the feeling of half million of Palestinian Syrians And I wish I will see the day when I see justice take a place, not not just in Syria, in Syria, in Palestine, in all of the Middle East, and in all of the world. All right, and welcome back to Indigo Radio. That was Mahmoud Nawar with us, um, recorded last week, and. Because our show is a little bit short on the air today, we will include the extended edition of Mahmoud's uh, interview with us in our podcast. So we're going to go to a quick song break. This song is Sheikh Imam. He was uh, an Egyptian singer. And the song is called Erect Your Forts. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. If you're just tuning in, today we're talking about detention and forced disappearance in the context of what's happening in the world and also in Syria and how the rest of the world is connected to the brutality in Syria. That was Sheikh Iman, Erect Your Forts. And I just wanted to read you 
a little um, bit of the lyrics of what he was saying. Erect your fortress on our farmlands with our hard labor and toil. The taverns are alongside the factories and the prisons are in place of the parks. Let loose our dogs on our streets and lock us in your prison cells. Now we know who is behind our agony. We now know ourselves and we are assembled, workers, peasants, and students. All right, and so our last segment here, we're going to play a clip um, by the French, the Egyptian French economist Samir Amin. Samir Amin uh, died this month, actually, and he left a very long legacy of writing um, about the world. Um, and he really loved people and poor people, and he wrote for them. And so what we wanted to do was play this clip from 2012. This is the year after um, this, the Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring um, began. And so he is discussing what's happening in Syria and Libya in the context of the world and in the context of history. Syria and for the region, it is not at all uh, bringing democracy. It is destroying the societies, just as they have destroyed the society of Libya. Destroy and I'll come to Iraq. Yeah. Well, if we take the, the example of Iraq, Iraq, what, what do they have done? Uh, uh, they, have, uh, they have replaced the real dictatorship of Saddam Hussein by three uglier dictatorships, two in the names of religion, Shia and Sunnah, one in the name of so-called ethnicity, the Kurds, which are uglier even than the, um, than the Saddam Hussein uh, uh, dictatorships. They have destroyed the country by systematic assassination. I have no other word uh, for that. In addition to the hundreds of, of thousands of people which were bombed, humanitarian bombing and so on. But in addition to that, the systematic assassination of the cadres of the regime, the scientists, the doctors, the engineers, the professors of university, and even the, the poets and so on. All the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the real elite of the, of the nation that is destroying a country. And this is their target for Syria. That is, what has the so-called Liberation Army of Syria uh, claimed to be its program? That we should eradicate the Alawi, the Druze, the Christians, and the Shia. When you add those four minorities, you come to 45% of the population of Syria. What does it mean? It means, that means democracy. It means the ugliest possible dictatorship and the destruction of the country. Now, who has a, a, an interest in that? This is the common interest of the three intimate allies, the US, Israel, and the Gulf countries. US, why? Because the destruction of the societies of the region is the best way to prepare the next stage, which is the destruction of, of, of Iran, with a view of uh, containment and then possibly rolling, rolling back of the major emerging countries, the dangerous one, China and Russia, and potentially 
if India is naughty, India, but India is not naughty for the time being. Um, that is the target. It, it implies the destruction of the societies of the Middle East, including that of Iran as a major, uh, a major target. But now, this, this project of, this, of destruction of societies uh, accompanied with the continuation of lumpen, lumpen development is also uh, the target of Israel. Because if Syria is split into four, and four or five uh, insignificant uh, confessional small states, well, it is made insignificant and it allows for further easy expansion of the process of colonization of Israel. It is also the, com the target of the Gulf. Well, it is al al almost a farce that we see today the Emir of Qatar and the King of Saudi Arabia standing with the Western, with Obama, with Sarkozy, with uh, Cameron as the leaders of the struggle for democracy. It's, 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 it's one can only laugh. But their, their hegemony in the region, in the name of Islam, in the name, because there are different understanding possible of Islam, of course, in the name of Islam, implies the destruction of countries like Egypt, basically. Because if Egypt is standing on her, on her feet, then the hegemony of the Gulf is zero. We can just remind what was the Gulf uh, in the time in the of Nasser, of Nasser. In, the day, in the days of Nasser. So they have this common, and they are supported within the societies by the Muslim Brotherhood. Therefore, I, I would conclude by that. We should look at the Muslim Brotherhood, not as an Islamic party. The criterion for, uh, for qualifying and judging organizations' party is not whether they are Islamic or whether they are secular but whether they are reactionary or progressive. And wh when we look at the Muslim Brotherhood, on all real issues, they are against the strikes of the working class. They are against the resistance of the poor peasants. They are against, uh, uh, they are for uh, privatization. They are in favor of the dismantling of the public services, which means that they are fully aligned on the most reactionary forces. This is a reactionary party using Islam as a flag. And we should, this is the, the real criterion. Uh, well, I think we, this is the, the, the global picture of what are the strategic targets of imperialists and their internal allies, the reactionary forces within the societies of the Middle East. All right, and welcome back to Indigo Radio. That was an interview with Samir Amin, the Egyptian-French economist in 2012. So we wanted to discuss that quote in relationship to the interviews that we had on the air earlier with uh, Danny Kabani and Mahmoud Nawar. And I just think that um, this idea of the project of destruction really ties true to Syria. Mm. I think that if um, there were real goals of removing Assad, that that would have happened. Right. And there's plenty of evidence that the U.S. military is the dominant uh, military in the world, mm -hmm. that they have the power to remove any government that they want. 
but that didn't happen. Right, and that was what a lot of people talked about um, who had been in, who were in Lebanon, that at the start of the conflict, it was clear, the start of the, the armed conflict, it was clear that if the U.S. and NATO powers wanted to end the war, that really all what the rebels needed were anti-aircraft missiles, and they were never supplied that ammunition. And so it was became clear to people that really it was about continuing, um, making this war continue. And I just think that it's the destroying of society is exactly what Danny and Mahmoud were talking about by forced disappearances. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say that the uh, forced migration is a form of destroying a society. When people are picking up and leaving and families are separated, and you can connect that to this country, the separation of families is destroying communities. It's making it harder and harder to resist injustices. Right, and there's not a real, um, and I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I think there needs to be a a real um, investigation as to why people are leaving these places, why people are fleeing. Like you're saying, there's the child separations happening on the border in this country. Um, But there is U.S. intervention, and there's always been justification for U.S. intervention, military intervention um, across the world, including fighting communism, the war on drugs, the war on terror. Um, And often along with that comes this idea of promoting democracy. Um, But in reality, in Syria, the arms being shipped from Libya to Syria were used to that were used to arm Syrian rebels, those arms were used by Syrian people to fight for political freedom. And at the same moment, they were not given uh, the arms that, the, that, really they were ne- that they really needed. And you know, Nick, whenever Syria comes up, I always think back to um, what former NATO Secretary General Wesley Clark um, said about a U.S. Secretary of Defense memo a week after 9-11 that there were plans to attack and destroy government in seven countries in five years. Mm. And that people will be very familiar with these countries as I list them. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. So that's pretty telling, right? Because many of those governments have been changed through uprising. And in addition to that, there's also the war in Yemen. And so what's interesting about the conversation, this anti-Assad conversation, which in many ways we agree with, right? But the conversation is um, that this dictator needs to be changed, while in the same moment our government is arming the Saudis to kill Yemeni civilians. Mm -hmm. And so why isn't the Saudi, why aren't Saudi leaders ever called dictators? What's happening inside Saudi Arabia is also... Um, there's no political freedom inside Saudi Arabia, so why isn't that an issue? Why aren't we talking about democracy in Saudi? And so when we think about who the U.S. backs or who the U.S. does not back, we Mm. need to think about what Samir Amin said of progressive and reactionary forces, those for or against the people. And so how do we decipher the information that's given to us through the U.S. media, knowing what we know about the U.S. media, that it's not always on the side of the people around the world. And so how do we figure out who is for the people and who is against the people? How do we figure out why the U.S. backed the rebels? Mm -hmm. Are they for or against the people? 
Is there a clear-cut answer to that? And who are the U.S. allies in the world and what are they doing, including Israel and Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and looking at the contradictions in the lines of these governments? That Israelis are brutalizing the Palestinians, the Saudis are bombing Yemenis, and the uh, Erdogan in Turkey is really destro- destroying his people mm. um, through systematic campaigns. And so how do, how do we really believe that these governments are on the side of the Syrian people? I think also looking at history is a really important piece in understanding what's happening today. And so if we look at Iraq as a, a clear example in, in the Arab world, we see videos of Donald Rumsfeld in 83 shaking Saddam Hussein's hand. And after that, there was, um, there was this relationship created between the U.S. and, and Iraq uh, through its war against the Shah, the, I'm sorry, the Islamic Revolution in Iran so after 79. And so um, what's interesting is that Saddam was put into power to replace Abdul Karim Qasim, who in 58 wanted to seize 99% of the British-owned Iraq Petroleum Company. And so we see this happening over and over again, where leaders that come into power that are for the people are replaced by U.S.-backed or British-backed, Western-backed um, quote-unquote, dictators, and their names are then used, as Saddam Hussein's was, when they're no longer fighting for the interests of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And we saw that happen in Kuwait, and then the Gulf War started, and all of a sudden, Saddam became a dictator. Mm -hmm. And so these, I think, are the tools that we need to use in order to decipher what's happening in Syria, um, because we don't have a lot of information. It's not so far in the past that we can see it clearly. So thank you. That is it for our show today on Indigo Radio at WVWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And tune in next week. We're going to be a kind of continuation from this show talking about prisons in the U.S., Mm -hmm. solitary confinement. And we'll also be wrapping up the three-week prison strikes that have been some of the largest prison strikes this um, stopping of labor within our prisons. That will be the culmination of it next Sunday. So we'll be discussing what's happened. And so we're going to go out with the rest of this Sheikh Imam song um, because it's so pertinent to what we've been talking about today. Thanks for joining us.
Welcome, friends, to Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic